So the title of the sermon this morning is Encountering God. When I was a boy, my father would cut wood. We burned wood for fuel. So uh, usually beginning in early fall, he would start cutting wood. He'd begin with a chainsaw. If uh, there was anyone that he knew that had a large tree on their property or a medium-sized tree, he'd go cut down the tree, and then he'd bring large chunks of, of wood to our backyard, and he'd use a chainsaw to cut it up and then an axe to split it. If, uh, if you've ever burnt wood, you know what I'm talking about. So as a young man, I had a lot of fond, nostalgic memories of hearing a chainsaw, the burr of a chainsaw in the backyard, usually around the fall of the year. When Trish and I uh, were married and shortly after we bought our first home, I told her, you know, I'd love to have a chainsaw. Of course, we had a lot of trees on our property in Greenville. We do here as well, but we had a lot of trees then, and there was reason to justify it. Um, but one year, she got me a chainsaw for Christmas. And I opened the chainsaw, and of course, it was an 18-inch poulain, and you know, I'm very excited about it. But I really was so excited about the newness of it, and if you've ever had a new chainsaw, some of you men can identify with what I'm saying, maybe not, but... Um, it smelled good, it was pristine, it was clean, and I really didn't want to use it. <laughs> it was too nice to use, too new, and so I just, I wanted to admire it. Of course I did use it, and now it doesn't look anything like that. It's been serviced a couple times and uh, probably needs servicing again. But um, the truth is that I had this fond experience with a chainsaw that made me want to relish that experience and the memory of that experience more than the chainsaw itself. My, in a similar vein, my grandmother, when I was a boy, she, um, I remember she, she's been passed away for quite some time, but I remember her house up until the time that she died, uh, she left her the plastic wrapping on her uh, lampshades. After, and some of you, you probably have had a parent who did that, or maybe a grandparent. Some of you don't know what I'm talking about. Uh, but she was so afraid that the lampshade would get dirty and soiled that she never took it out of its plastic wrapper, and she had them for 20 years. Uh, that highlights something that all of us can identify with. It highlights this fondness either towards a memory or towards an object that makes us want to venerate it more than to experience it, to venerate it, to hold it, as something we just set on a shelf and look at more than encounter it. And so as we read here the writing of Amos, the prophet Amos, what we encounter is that during the time of Amos, and Amos was a prophet uh, who ministered during the 8th century in northern Israel, uh, during a period of time when Israel was very successful, they were prosperous, uh, financially speaking, in fact, it was under the reign of Jeroboam II. Jeroboam II reigned for about 41 years. And under his reign, the northern kingdom of Israel expanded to the largest boundary since the time of Solomon, the king uh, who, who was the most prosperous uh, before Jeroboam. And it was during this period of time that Israel really had every external reason to believe that they were successful to believe that all was well, both with themselves as well as with their relationship with God. Economically speaking, they were doing well. Uh, militarily speaking, they were strong. Politically speaking, things were great. The kingdom was expanding. They had a king whose reign lasted for a long period of time. Proverbially speaking, their churches were full on Sunday. 
And there was every external indicator that they were doing well. And so it may have been a bit of a surprise for Amos to enter the scene and to announce to them, things are not well. Even though churches are full every Sunday, your view of God is that he is like that chainsaw that I mentioned earlier. You venerate this past experience, but you do not encounter the God of your fathers. And so that leads me to the first point that I want to make this morning, which is this. It is dangerous to mistake an experience for an encounter. Now, please don't misunderstand. There's great value in divine experiences in history, both our own as well as those of people who've gone on before. However, and this is very important, past experience is never a replacement for present encounter. And in verses 4 and 5 here of Amos 5, we see that God tells Israel to seek me and live, but then he tells them, do not seek Bethel, do not cross over to Beersheba, for Gilgal shall surely go into exile, and Bethel shall come to nothing. So what is the significance of these three locations? Well, at all three locations, it sounds as if, according to Amos, that there were pilgrimages that were being made by Israel to all three of these significant sites. And all three sites are significant historically and biblically because they embodied, they um, represented an encounter that Israel or their patriarchs had with God. The place of Bethel, if you remember from Genesis, was the place where Jacob, when he was fleeing from the house of Isaac, his father, because of Esau, his brother, he came to Bethel. And he had a dream there, and in this dream he saw a ladder reaching from earth to heaven. And he saw the angels of God ascending and descending on this ladder, and at the very top he saw God himself. And so when he awoke the next morning, the Bible says that he was afraid. And he said, God is here, and I did not know it. So he named that place Beit El, which is Hebrew for house of God. And so Bethel symbolized for God's people his abiding presence among them, resulting in renewal and transformation. It was also to Bethel after uh, Jacob left the house of Laban when he was coming back to the house of Isaac. It was at Bethel that he had this encounter with God, and God changed his name from Jacob to Israel. So Bethel, for the ancient Israelites, represented not only a place where they encountered God, where their patriarchs had this mind-blowing encounter with God, but also where their destiny was transformed. And so they made pilgrimages to this place. And the second place that is mentioned, Beersheba, was where Abraham cut the covenant with a pagan king. If you remember, uh, there was a, a pagan king, a Philistine king, in Genesis chapter 21, verse 22. And, and this Philistine king observed how successful Abraham was, and he knew that God was with him. So he invited him to Beersheba, and it was there that they cut a covenant. And this king tells Abraham in chapter 21 of Genesis, verse 22, God is with you in all that you do. So again, at Beersheba, there was this reminder to the people of God that God was with them. Years later, whenever Jacob leaves Canaan to go down to Egypt, God appears to him at Beersheba. And he says, I myself will go down with you to Egypt. We see that in Genesis 46, verse 4. So all three of the patriarchs, Jacob, Abraham, and uh, Isaac encountered the presence of God at this location, at Beersheba. So what's the significance of Gilgal? Well, Gilgal 
was the first place that Israel camped after crossing the Jordan River. They came into the land of Canaan. They ate there for the first time of the fruits of the land. So it represents for the people of God a fulfillment of his divine promises. It represented uh, the inheritance, taking inheritance, the possession of the land of promise. A fulfillment not only of God's promises to his people, but also of their taking possession of the land. So all three of these places were significant, and you might even say sources of false confidence for the people of God, because they experienced at all three places God's covenantal blessing, but during the time of Amos, did not experience the covenantal commitment. And so that's what the prophet Amos highlights here. When God tells them, do not go to Bethel, do not go to Gilgal, do not cross over to Beersheba, he's highlighting these places of encounter with God, these places of past encounter. And he's saying, don't look at the past, don't look at the experiences of those who've gone on before and mistake that for an encounter with me. Israel was so consoled by this false reality of a relationship that did not exist despite how ornate and meaningful it had once been. God instructed them that Gilgal shall go into exile and Bethel will come to nothing and will be devoured by fire. So it was at this point in Amos's ministry that you could hear the recipients of this message. You could hear the Israelites gasp. They would say, wait a minute, what are you talking about? It's the best of times. Our economy is flourishing. We have a king on the throne who's been there for years. Churches are full every Sunday. What do you mean that these places are going to come to naught? We experience God. Well, the way they lived their life would indicate otherwise. This brings me to the second point, which we see here in the text. And that is that there is no authentic encounter without change. Why the distinction? Why do we distinguish between having an encounter versus an experience? And by the way, an encounter is an experience, but an experience is not necessarily an encounter. And so this distinction is a significant one. And you say, well, how could we judge the hearts of these people? How could you, Amos? Which, by the way, Amos was a shepherd. If you go to the very first chapter, the first verse, he says, I was a shepherd among the shepherds of Tekoa. Amos was not a seminary-trained pastor. Amos was not the son of a prophet. Amos was not a significant prophet when it came to being perceived as such by people in his own day. In fact, he was a shepherd, but he had a word from God to God's people. And that word was, you've mistaken an experience for an encounter. Then he points to the fact that there is no authentic encounter without change. They would have gasped and said, how dare you, Amos? Aren't you a bit out of your territory as a shepherd, a sheep herder, to make such a lofty claim? The sure sign that God's people had not encountered him was their failure to live in a manner that reflected his righteous rule. And we see this in verse 7 where he says, who, those who turn justice to wormwood and cast down righteousness to the earth, they are the recipients of this message. They are the ones to whom God is addressing this prophecy. The incriminating accusation against God's people is found in this subtle yet poetic 
uh, text that we see in verses 8 through 9, which some scholars believe to be actually a, a hymn, probably from one of the ancient pilgrimage sites, such as Bethel. But in verses 8 and 9, we hear this poetic description of what it means to encounter God. He who made the Pleiades and Orion and turns deep darkness into the morning, darkens the day into night, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out on the surface of the earth, the Lord is his name, who makes destruction flash forth against the strong so that destruction comes upon the fortresses. These verses are more than just a commentary. They're more than just an aside comment. They are a declaration that the one that Israel claimed to have encountered is a God that is capable of transformation. In all three instances, in the, uh, in the verses that I just read, God is declared as the one who changes the seasons. Because when you look at uh, reference there to Pleiades and Orion, there are constellations that appear in the night sky at different times of, of the year, of spring and fall in ancient Israel. And so Amos is telling them, look, God is the one who changes the seasons. And that's significant for an agrarian society. If you're a farmer, that's pretty important. And so this God that you say you've encountered, he changes the seasons. He causes it to rain. We see that reference where he talks about uh, the, the waters being opened up, the waters of the sea, and pouring them on the surface of the earth. There's a rainy season in ancient Israel. There was a dry season. There was a season of planting. And so what's being referenced there is that this God is a God of transformation. This God is a God of change. Also, he changes day into night and night into day. And he elevates those to positions of authority and power, and he brings those down who he chooses not to reign. We see this in verse 9, who makes destruction flash forth against the strong, so that destruction comes upon the fortress. So one thing that Amos says about this God that they claim to have encountered is that it's impossible to encounter him and remain unchanged. And we see that in all three cases that I, uh, of the pilgrimage sites that I mentioned earlier. In Bethel, when Jacob encounters God. His first response is to be terrified. And he says, God, if you preserve me in the way that I go, then I will give you a tenth of everything. And Abraham, when he encounters God at Beersheba, he too is changed. He too realizes that the God who cut a covenant with him is with him and will remain with him at all times. And then Gilgal, if you know anything about Gilgal, you know it's the place where Israel, the males in Israel had a mass circumcision. Because during the period of time when they were wandering in the wilderness, they were not circumcised. And circumcision, of course, was more than just an act. It was a sign of the covenant between God and his people. And so it was at Gilgal, this place where they ate of the fruit of the promised land for the first time, that they had this mass circumcision of all their males. A renewal of the covenant. Transformation. And so, in a way, they were condemning themselves in a way, they were incriminating themselves by making pilgrimage to all these sites of encounter and yet living lives that were unchanged by the God they professed to serve. So Amos, in so many words, says, you want to know what it's like to encounter God? Look at his mighty acts all around you. Look at his might and power. It's impossible to encounter such a God and to remain unchanged. For the people that truly encounter God, and we see this not in the text, but in verse 24 of the same chapter, says justice must row down like water and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. 
And so what we see in this text is that there is no authentic encounter without change. That this perception of an encounter with God that was a false sense of security for his people because they made a pilgrimage to a place where once he had revealed himself, but yet they were paying lip service to this God of their fathers and they walked away unchanged. And so Amos tells them, you've not encountered the God of creation. You've not encountered the God of the covenant. So as an application, by the way, uh, let me just say this, that it is tempting for us, just as it was tempting for the people of God back in the time of the Old Testament, for Israel back in the time of Amos, to mistake an experience for an encounter. It is tempting for us as well, but yet it remains impossible for us to truly encounter God and remain unchanged. It's not enough for us to pay intellectual assent to faith in God, nor is it enough simply to show up. God is not impressed that we put on our finest and came here this morning. God is not impressed that we know all the right answers to the most important questions. What is God impressed by? Well, the Bible says in Psalm 51, 17, that God is impressed with a contrite heart, a heart that is broken before him, a despised spirit he will not, uh, or, or a, a broken spirit he will not despise, a heart that cries out to the God of creation, that says, God, you have moved among us in the past, do it again, here I am, start with me. That is the heart that impresses the throne of God. That is the heart that lays hold of the maker. It's a heart that is humbly and sincerely crying out for, the, for a change in direction. Where there is no encounter, there is no change. Where there is no change, we have not encountered God. So this brings me to the third point, which we see here in the text, and that is that encountering the God of the Bible results in care for the poor and the marginalized. You see, if I was writing Amos, if I was Amos the prophet, I probably would be tempted uh, to shy away from those sins of the economy because after all, even a shepherd needs income, right? Even a shepherd needs someone to buy a sheep. And I probably would have focused my time on those more obvious, grievous sins of society. We know during this period of time that the economic sins of Israel are not the only sins they were guilty of. They were guilty of gross idolatry, worship of Baal, golden calves that the first Jeroboam erected at Dan and Beersheba. They were guilty of sexual immorality. They were guilty of a plethora of sins, which you might say is summarized by the reference there to righteousness to allowing righteousness to succeed and justice to prevail. But it's the sins of the economy, it's economic sins, if you will, the sins that attack the pocketbook, ultimately, that God addresses through Amos. And he answers the question, what does it look like for a people to encounter the God of creation? What well, looks like? Not only that we demonstrate God's righteous rule in the earth, in every aspect of our life, but it also looks like care for the poor and the marginalized, care for those who are in need. Verses 10 through 13 summarizes five ways 
that an encounter with God will change your life. And I'm going to just briefly touch on each one. The first, he calls out the sin of despising those who speak the truth. Those who would cry aloud, no doubt Amos himself, who were willing to stand up and tell the emperor that he has no clothes. Those who were willing to take a stand even when it was politically and socially and morally apprehensible to do so. Those who were willing to speak out even when given the name of a bigot or someone who was a hater. Those who were willing to speak truth when it cost them so much. They hated those individuals. And so this is one sin, ultimately, that is addressed in verse 10, despising those who speak the truth. Second, trampling the poor. In order to excel, in order to succeed, you trample those who have nothing. You make decisions individually as well as socially that trample the poor. Three, overtaxing the poor. Four, afflicting the righteous. Five, taking a bribe. And then six, the sixth thing is turning aside those in need. So there are six things here that we see summarized. Ultimately, these are ways that Israel is sinning as a people. And God says, this is the proof that you've not encountered me. How you treat one another. It is not inconsequential that John... And one of his epistles instructs us, how can we say we love God whom we have not seen and yet hate our brother whom we have seen? At the heart of biblical religion, at the heart of our life when we've truly been transformed by an encounter with God is how we see others who are less fortunate, how we see those who are the poor and the marginalized among us. In other words, God was concerned about how his people treated the marginalized in their midst. He knew that their economic lives, regardless of how false the perception of prosperity, ultimately was an indicator that their hearts were unchanged by his law. When we look at God's law, really he spared very little detail when it came to instructing Israel how they should care for the needy and care for the poor. We see it in revolutionary ways, ways that it's easy to gloss over. It's convenient to gloss over. We see it in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 21, where God instructs them. He says, when you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you shall not strip it afterwards. In other words, be inefficient in how you harvest for the sake of the poor. Do not strip it afterwards. It shall be for the sojourner. What's a sojourner? It's the person who's traveling. The person who does not have a legitimate claim to your land. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. That was a command that God gave to ancient Israel. And later he reminds Israel, after they return from Babylonian captivity, he reminds them to the prophet Zechariah what righteousness looks like. We see this in Zechariah chapter 7, verses 9 through 10, where he says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, render true judgments. Show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor, and let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. That is pure, pure religion. 
The New Testament is not silent about this. We see this in James chapter 1, verse 27, where he says, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit the orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So the message is clear, both Old Testament and New Testament alike, for the people of God in the day of Amos and for you and I today. The message is clear. How we treat each other is a litmus test, whether we like it or not, for whether we have encountered God. Now, please hear me when I say that I wrestled long with this passage, not only this past week as I was preparing it, but those of you who were in the Minor Prophets class, I believe it was last fall, I was teaching it then, and it's been on my heart and mind ever since. And it's convicting. It's convicting because in my own life, I ask myself the question, are the people that know me better off because I'm a Christian? Are the poor in my community better off because I'm a Christian? Are the needy surrounding us better off because HPC is here? We can have the best experience of a lifetime, but unless it results in a transformed life, we have not had an encounter with the God of the Bible. Pure religion is detailed for us not only in the Old Testament, but also the New. And so the word that God brings to the people of Israel through the prophet Amos is short but yet succinct. He wants to awaken them from their lethargy and reveal that it's dangerous to mistake an experience for an encounter. And he highlights the fact that there is no authentic encounter without change. And then finally, he shows us that the change that he's looking for is righteousness in every aspect of our life. But those aspects of our life that we often want to overlook because it's inconvenient to acknowledge are perhaps the more weighty. Encountering the God of the Bible results in care for the poor and the marginalized. I think many of us, when it comes to encountering God, like to think of God as we do a pet. What I mean by that is there's a care for deceased pets that is actually increasing um, in our society. And I'm not speaking in a negative way of this. If you have done this, I'm not speaking critically. I'm using it simply as an illustration. Uh, but it's become somewhat common, uh, increasingly so at least, that when a pet passes away, the owner just cannot think of, of, of their house without that pet. And so part of the grieving process is they have their pet stuffed. Maybe you've seen this. You've seen a, a dog or a cat or some other animal that is stuffed. And, and, and by doing that, it helps the grieving process. You never have to, you know, not see your animal there in your home. Well, where we help to understand, how this helps us understand what Amos is saying here is when we think of, of how someone who may not have known the pet, um, and they walk into your home and they see the pet, See, the, the, the presence of the pet is significant for you because you have past experience with the pet, right? But for someone who's never had that past experience, it's difficult to encounter the animal in the same way 
that they might have when the animal was yet alive. And so in many ways, we treat the God of the Bible as if he is a stuffed pet. He's there on our shelf. He reminds us of fond memories of the past, stories we were told as a child, maybe stories we've read ourselves from Scripture. But have we truly encountered him? Have we encountered the God of the Bible? And one way that we can tell is whether or not we are transformed, whether or not we are changed. Now let me just draw some closing applications from this text to us this morning. Because if you're like me, you are increasingly troubled by the day and age in which we live. Polarization within our society, not to mention the political sphere, which we're inundated with daily, but polarization within our society, polarization within our workplaces, polarization within our homes, perhaps, even within the last 24 hours, two mass shootings in the country. Saw a statistic this morning that it's the 250th mass shooting in this country this year alone. And if you're like me, you hear these things and our heart breaks. And we ask ourselves the question, what impact are we having as a church? As a Christian, what impact am I having? Am I having an impact on the people who know me, on the people with whom I come in contact? And I think there are a few things I just want to leave you with this morning as we think through the answer to that question. There is a danger in us, in the church, becoming an institution and failing to embody the incarnate gospel. When we begin our ministries, Asking where can minimal effort produce maximum result instead of seeking to bring healing where society needs it the most. We confuse an encounter with God for an economic principle. When we turn a blind eye to the impoverished in our communities because their presence makes us uncomfortable, we are confusing the experience of church with an encounter with God. And some of you, please do not be offended. I'm sure I will get an email or two this week. When we act as if racism is nothing more than a political scarecrow and are unwilling to acknowledge the hate that is in our own hearts, we seek an experience with God, a God who is like us, instead of the God who's truly there. And when we are more concerned with the presence of the sojourner, of the immigrant, legal or not, than with the salvation of the immigrant, then our devotion is to the kingdom of this world instead of the kingdom of God. Now, please, do not hear any of that and think that I am espousing some liberal agenda because I assure you I am not. But rather, I am asking a heartfelt question of myself first. And it's one that I hope that all of us would ask. Are the people in my community different? Are they affected? Are they impacted? Do they flourish because I'm a Christian? Is this world, is this city, is our neighborhood 
a better place because we are here. That is ultimately the question I believe that God was presenting to Israel here in Amos. Righteousness, of course, is the totality of living under the rule of God and demonstrating that rule of society. And for us to emphasize uh, one aspect of righteousness over another uh, would be to our detriment. However, when we look at what is important to the heartbeat of God, we realize that an encounter with God will always result in how we treat the people, particularly the poor and the needy in our community. And so my final words to you as I conclude this morning is that we wrestle with this question. Is my life richer or is the life of the people with whom I meet, with whom I work, with whom I, the people in my neighborhood, is their lives richer and more meaningful because I am a Christian? And if not, what can I do to help them flourish? Now, you may be here this morning and you have never encountered the God of the Bible. Maybe you're not putting your faith in Jesus Christ. Let me just say to you that one way that we encounter God is through the preaching of his word. That when his word is proclaimed, he has promised as a means of grace to meet us in that moment in a way that often is difficult to understand. So if you've listened to the word proclaimed this morning and you say, you know, I've, I've never encountered this God of the Bible, I encourage you. If you feel the tug of the Holy Spirit on your heart and you know that your life is meaningless and empty, I encourage you to look to Jesus. Cry out to him and repent of your sins and surrender your life to him. Allow his sovereign rule to be the reign and rule in your life. But if you are a Christian and you have encountered this God of the Bible, let me encourage you not to become too complacent with a past experience, but to seek to have God's kingdom rule daily manifested in your life, in my life, in the life of those who put our faith and confidence in him. Let us pray. Father, we give you thanks for your mercy. We give you thanks for the truth of your word. We give you thanks for Jesus. We thank you for the gospel and the power of the gospel that compels us to confront uncomfortable truth, both within the church as well as out of the church. And Father, we ask that your continued work in us and through us would bring glory to the name of Jesus Christ, who has redeemed us by his blood, who's purchased us from every tribe, nation, people, and tongue. May we truly encounter the God of creation, and may our lives be forever changed because of it. We pray this 